electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends just trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. If I, <laughs> I tell you, let's say, Let's say you told me, let's say you told me yesterday after it was a horror show at four o'clock that that this market could finish in the black on a day when Apple, Amazon and Starbucks got pummeled during the earnings period. I call you crazy. These companies are too big. They're too iconic. They're too important to the averages. Yet that's exactly what happened. Dow gaining 89 points. That's to be advancing 0.19%. NASDAQ edging up 0.33%. A nice end to the best October six years. Once again, proving that the only thing you need to fear about this month is Halloween. And I got to tell you, today I was in heaven. As much as I like Amazon and Apple, you know that. Big tech uh, makes for a bad leadership because the group has very few followers. Instead, we're being led by a host of red-hot sectors that are much better generals than Apple or Amazon will ever be. So can the winning streak continue into November? I'm going to give you the game plan for next week. Now, first on Monday, we get a read on one of the biggest stories in this market, and that's the semiconductor uh, shortage. Everybody's talking about it. That's what Apple CEO Tim Cook told me, that things might even get worse before they get better. Is he right? Well, why don't we go to the sources? And the sources are, in this case, on Semiconductor and NXP. They do a lot of auto semis, and they've got exposure in many of the other areas where they're the biggest bottlenecks. Why don't we hear them out, see what they have to say? After the close, we get results from FANG. No, not that FANG, this FANG, Diamond Energy. Yeah, Diamondback. And I'll tell you, Diamondback, I've never recommended Diamondback until recently, okay? Although people have criticized me of recommending it not that long ago. 
Um, Diamondback is the fastest growing oil company in America, but they've gotten a lot more discipline. I've been telling you that select oils would be great investments with crude in the 80s. Sure enough, Chevron today, this very morning, delivered a gorgeous quarter coupled with a dividend boost. But Chevron's so big that the stock barely budged. It remains a buy. Diamondbacks, well, that's a lot more volatile, which is a good thing if I'm right, and they give you a monster set of numbers. On the other end of the spectrum... There's Clorox, which is rapidly rising raw costs that they might not be able to pass on to you, the consumer, via price increases. They sure couldn't last quarter. I I hope for the best, but I am preparing for the worst. Tuesday morning, we hear from two charitable trust names, Estee Lauder and DuPont, as we've been telling investment club members. And by the way, you should be signing up. There are a lot of good, concise reports coming out about stocks. These two, well, let's just say I don't expect them to have superb quarters. Fortunately, the expectations are low, though. So it won't take much to produce an upside surprise that moves the stocks up. At Estee Lauder, people worried about Chinese demand for cosmetics and skin care. At DuPont, they've been hit hard by rising raw costs and, yes, the chip shortage, which is why we've been trimming our position for the charitable trust. How about Pfizer? All right, now, unlike Moderna, Pfizer's a lot more complicated than just a COVID vaccine story. See, they're facing what's known as a patent cliff next year, and we need to know if the boosters, which cost a lot of money are going to cover the patent cliff. We're going to be listening to see if they offset the damage. Now, we also get results from BP. If we compare it to Chevron, I bet we'll find BP wanting. The major oils, with the exception of Chevron and perhaps Conoco, are far more challenged than the smaller, nimbler players like the Diamondback I just mentioned, uh, uh, or Devon, which reports Tuesday night, or Pioneer Nat, Pioneer Natural Resources, which reports on Wednesday night. I especially like the latter two and their terrific variable dividends. After the close Tuesday, we hear from T-Mobile. The telco industry has been got a clear peculiar. Let's see if we can't go down it. I'll run it down. T-Mobile for growth, Verizon for the dividend, and ATT for nothing. Let's see how many subscribers T-Mobile has been able to steal from its rivals when they report. Okay, how about Zorro? Yes, letter Z, Zillow, the helpful real estate website that branched out into buying, refurbishing, and then selling homes. Now, they had to put the real estate flipping business on pause because the economics turned out against them. But what does that really mean? Well, we're going to find out on Tuesday, although I've got to tell you, as much as I want to hear what they say, uh, housing will probably be much more dependent on Wednesday because that's when that FOMC, that's when the when Jay Powell speaks. Uh, I, don't, I do not expect the unexpected. CVS, that's a victor. CVS reports Wednesday morning. Now, this stock's been on a roll, bolstered by COVID vaccines and superior execution, at least compared to arch rival Walgreens. Now, I don't know if it can continue now that the pandemic's winding down, but remember that CVS also has a huge health insurance business. And this is a good time for health insurance, as you'll find out when Humana reports that same morning. This, uh, now, we talked to Sid and team. We had Michael Nida from the show, and uh, United Health gave us some fabulous numbers. I think that actually Humana is going to have the biggest upside surprise. Also, Wednesday morning, we get results from Marriott. I think they'll tell us that things are getting better for travel. Unfortunately, we might hear exactly the opposite from Wynn Resorts on Wednesday night, which is troubling because the Chapel Trust owns that one. Of course, you need to be patient when you're running money. And I have a patience for I have patience for Wynn, which does a ton of business in Macau. And that's China's gambling haven. We're seeing signs that the Chinese government's becoming more friendly to U.S. business. Goldman got its own bank recently. No joint venture needed. I don't know when Macau will become more hospitable, but I'm willing to wait. And the investment club will give you a bullish. I'm sorry, will give you a bolt and probably won't be bullish after the quarter. Now, we got a lot of good feedback on our Facebook, Metaverse, Apple and Amazon memos last night. I hope we can deliver the same thing for you on Wynn. Speaking of Apple, are they being too dire in their chip shortage position? Are they being too much 
uh, lead tasso and not enough uh, Ted Lasso. Uh, Qualcomm reports it to the close. They'll give us more insight into the cell phone market, but I bet that can't be that positive either. If you want positivity, I want you to listen to Etsy's conference call, Brooklyn's own. I bet CEO Josh Silverman will have a lot of good things to say about his e-commerce platform for handicrafts. Should make a nice contrast to Amazon's disappointing quarter. Can Uber rally in a situation where they can't find enough drivers? Isn't that an interesting question? We'll find it out Thursday. I think Uber can deliver, but the stock's been kept down by persistent sellers. So even a good quarter might not matter, at least not until these weak hands finish dumping their shares. It's horrendous. We also get results from Skyworks Solutions, another key supplier to Apple, and many other cell phone, others in the cell phone business. Now, their call is actually a concise highlight of earnings because they give you an eloquent semiconductor state of play analysis, which is exactly what we all need. Maybe they give us some insight into when the chip shortage nightmare can come to an end. They manufacture their own chips. They don't have foundry. And then there's Peloton, the former market darling turned total dog. Can Peloton make a comeback? This maker of smart exercise equipment seems forever linked with the pandemic. It hasn't been able to get traction since the great reopening narrative took hold. I think they got the work cut out for them. Oh, yeah, how about Square, the payment technology company turned small business lender? The whole fintech space has come under pressure lately, with the exception of a firm, the buy now, pay later sensation. I wonder whether Square can pull a rabbit out of a hat with all this competition. I'm betting their mojo will be absent for now. Mojo being a technical term on Wall Street for the massive love of stock gets after a monster beaten rate. Quarter. Finally, on Friday, we have Enbridge, the Kramer Fay pipeline play that we recently had on the show. Why is it my favorite? Well, I like the dividend. It gives you 6.3% yield. Plus, we have a real shortage of energy infrastructure, so I bet business is good. We will have more perspective on that yield, by the way, as the non-farm payroll employment report comes out at 8.30 that day. I don't mean to diminish that that all-important figure, but I understand that these numbers are so all over the map right now that their actual appearance does seem deceiving. At this point, earnings season is finally winding down. We have retail coming up the week after next, but that tends to be pegged to the coming holiday season. We'll get more port congestion talk for sure. It'll really be boring. And don't forget, we're due with it for a sell signal from the legendary Larry Williams sometime next week. I will check in with him as he laid out exactly earlier this month what would happen with his prescient call about the October boom. But the bottom line, other than that, I think you stay the course here, which includes sticking with Apple despite the supply chain woes. I always say, yes, own Apple, don't trade it. Tom, in my home state of New Jersey, Tom! Hey, Jimmy, how are you? Tom, I am good. How about you? Excellent. Listen, you're, I want to thank you again, as always. Uh, you take good care of your listeners. Thank you. And uh, uh, you're a mentor. Oh, thank so, you. Thank you, man. That's great. Thank you. Well, listen, uh, uh, Visa is, a, uh, is an interest of mine, and they reported fantastic earnings and a great um, uh, upbeat, and the stock sold off a little bit. What's your thoughts on uh, well, more than itself a little bit? I mean, fees has now lost uh, 40 points. Here's what I'll tell you. Uh, the great Lisa Ellis from Moffitt Nathanson and I both concur that this stock has gotten severely oversold and it makes no sense. Everybody wants a firm. Nobody wants fees. Fees is a $500 billion company. I wouldn't sweat the program. Earnings season's winding down now. I think you stay the course in a lot of stocks that really got hammered, like Visa. That means stick with Apple, even though the supply chain continues to be... Spooky. Oh, man, money tonight. Even in the face of record highs, you have to make sure your portfolio is prepared for whatever the market throws at you, which is why we're playing Am I Diversified? Then, Global Foundries had its public debut yesterday, finishing its first session lower. Nice today. So I'm chipping away at the semiconductor foundry stock to see what the future could hold. Boy, did the investment bankers pull that one. And don't miss my exclusive with a Kemble company with a site set on being a good corporate citizen with, a, with some ambitious ESG targets. So stay with Kramer. 
Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Look, in a busy earnings week like this, we're constantly seeing stocks going bid up by good numbers or sometimes shot down when their metrics don't meet Wall Street's expectations. It's all very confusing to some of you. You need to be ready to shield your mad money against these unpredictable, volatile swings. And that's called diversification. And that's why we play MI Diversified. By the way, I first heard this just, you know, from the SEC chief, uh, Gary Gensler. He told it to me, I don't know, probably like 20 years ago. This is where you call me, you tell me your top five holdings, and I tell you if your portfolio is diversified enough. Maybe you need to mix it up a little. So first up is a video caller. This is uh, Nadir in California. Nadir. Booyah, Jim. This is Nader calling from beautiful Oakland, California. Sorry for the Cowboys t-shirt, and thank you for all the information you send us through Investing Club. My top five holdings are Google, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Costco, and United Health. Am I diversified, Jim? Thank you. Nader, um, I, I, I'm kind of blinded by the light there. Star, uh, but that's all right. You know what? I'm a forgiving person. I'm a kind man. I'm a good man. Not like, uh, uh, not unlike Marlon Brando at the end of Apocalypse Now. Okay, here we go. 
NVIDIA, yes. Okay, the greatest semiconductor uh, company of our time. Costco, perhaps the greatest retail experience of our time. You've got to try. I'm not kidding. Shrimp dish, uh, but more, even better if you go over to the left. They've got some incredible whitefish salad. Uh, Microsoft, uh-oh. Mm, okay, Night Health is perfect. They did, well, of course, blow up the quarter. Now we've got a problem here. NVIDIA, Google, and Microsoft are all set, are all tech. Uh, and I love them all. And so this is the great quantity that many of us, Nader, are follow, are, are, have right now. And I'm going to say, I'm going to choose Microsoft as a keeper, but I'm going to describe Google as a conglomerate, all right? Because it's really, face, it's really you know, that's what I call it, alphabet. And I'm going to let you keep all of these. Now, people could say, Jim, that is a violation of everything. But semi-conglomerate software no longer trade together like they did. So, Nader, even though you're a Cowboy fan, I'm going to bless that portfolio. And I'm going to write about it, I think, in, for, uh, in my, uh, the club, in the Charitable Trust, uh, because it's such a complicated issue that I bless that that I can't just say, okay, on to the next, because that's a real quandary for most people right now in America. And so i got to give it more time than I can to remember diversify. All right, next up is John in Maryland. John. Hello, Jim. Hi, John. This is John from Maryland. My five stocks are PNC Financial, Microsoft, Target, Lowe's, UPS. Am I diversified? Right, now, this is a simpler issue for me, and it's, it's not hard at all. Microsoft, we just identified that as a software company. UPS is, uh, they had a blowout quarter. How did they have a blowout quarter in retrospect after what Amazon did? And uh, PNC, very fine bank, raised numbers, people really liking the stock. But Lowe's and Target truly are the same. I had both people speak at a, at a sustainability conference recently, and there's just too much overlap there. So I'm going to have to say... Uh, that we're going to take out Target. All right, just had a great run. They bought all great. And I'm going to put in United Health, like that gentleman uh, Nader's just suggested, even though he's a cowboy fan. And that way you get the diversification you need. All right, so now we go to stick with Kramer because I took too much time. But it's sometimes worth it. I mean, isn't it, it? It's so hard to figure out if you own Microsoft and you own Google. And the answer is yes, you do. So stick with Kramer. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. 
Start planning today at aarp.org slash moneytools. This darn market has been so jam-packed with important earnings reports this week that you probably didn't notice. We had the third largest IPO of the year yesterday. No one paid any attention to it. You might think that Global Foundries, one of the world's largest semiconductor manufacturers, one that actually makes chips here in America, will get a little more attention given that we're in the midst of a global chip shortage. But when you consider the timing of the deal, it's like the investment bankers were trying to get it done in secret. They did a really bad job. Just terrible. I mean, like, they spent a lot more time on, like, the rent, the runways and stuff. And I look, I love that, but they should have focused on this one. I can't believe how quietly this thing happened. Like some, some, some kind of ninja IPO. While Global Foundry's priced at the high end of its proposed range, $47, that's also where the stock opened before only finishing the day down a few nickels and dimes of 46 and change. Now, sure, it came roaring back today. I mean, people came to their senses. 5% to $48 and change. But when you consider the kind of huge first-day pop we've gotten used to for a lot of junk merchandise that's probably never going to make any money, that's nothing. Seriously, the lack of hype is stunning. Global Foundries is a semiconductor foundry, for heaven's sake. Just one of five scale foundries in the whole world at a time when we're desperate for what? Semiconductors. Yet it comes public with no fanfare. I, I, I was shocked at this. You know, so, so we got to figure out I mean, what happened. Were investors really distracted given the barrage of tech earnings we've gotten this week? That could be. Were they too focused on Facebook's ethereal metaverse pitch to bother with something as concrete as semiconductor manufacturing? Or is there something maybe wrong with Global Foundries? Did they have good reason to sit this one out? I think Wall Street's making a mistake, and this stock is a buy. First, though, let me give you some background so you can understand where Global Foundries fits into the semiconductor food chain. Long story short, a foundry is a place where chips get manufactured, although more often we call them fabs. Fabs, short for fabrication plants, because it's too hard to say the word fabrication, right? That takes too long, so they call it fab. In the semiconductor business, companies that design chips rarely do their own manufacturing because building these plants is very expensive and the margins are relatively low. Remember, Wall Street likes high gross margins. So chip designers outsource the manufacturing side to operations like Global Foundries or the big dog, which is Taiwan Semi, the one I'm always worried about, the, the PRs, the People's Republic of China, like wake up and take it over. I mean, that's one reason we have this huge shortage right now is there's just not a lot of fabs. The industry used to look very different. In the old days, it was more like Intel, which still does much of its own manufacturing. In fact, Global Foundries used to be AMD's manufacturing arm until they sold it to the UAE's Sovereign Wealth Fund 12 years ago. As a private company, they, were then, they then went on to acquire a series of semiconductor manufacturers, including IBM's microchip division, which is where they got their fabrication plant in upstate New York. They also have operations in Vermont, along with a plant in Dresden, Germany, and another one in Singapore, making no sense whatsoever where they are, right? I mean, well, no, I'm... They, they're right in exactly the right places. Now, while there are thousands of electronics companies and hundreds of chip makers, there are only a handful of large-scale foundries, and Global Foundries is the only company doing this in America with their state-of-the-art facility in upstate New York. You've got Taiwan Semi and United Microelectronics in Taiwan, Samsung in Korea, Semiconductor Manufacturing International in China, and Global Foundries in Malta, New York. Do not bother Googling Malta. It defaults to that cool Mediterranean paradise, and then it defaults to a falcon. At a time when everyone's worried about the global supply chain, especially with China getting really aggressive in Southeast Asia, this is the only major foundry that's not within reach of the Chinese Air Force. 
Perhaps more important, Global Foundries makes what are known as full-feature chips. That's an important point. Okay, that's a term of art, full-feature chips. Now, these are the cheaper, less sophisticated semiconductors that go into all sorts of machines, especially cars. That's a good place to be right now, maybe the best, at a time when the automakers are desperate to get their hands on more chips, giving them real pricing power. So how about the numbers? This is where it gets interesting. Historically, Global Foundries hasn't been a great business. There's a reason nearly every semiconductor company offloaded its manufacturing arm over the past few decades. For years, Global Foundry saw its sales shrink as the company spun off various divisions to a focus on a handful of core end markets. And that's smartphones, and they they cared about personal computing, all right, Uh, infrastructure, and the cloud, the Internet of Things, and autos. Those are the strong end markets. But when you look at the financials, what you see are years of declining numbers from 2018 through 2020. At the same time, during that period, their cash flow situation was improving. Remember, this was all part of a turnaround effort that was actually as quiet as the way the bankers handled the IPO. But what matters is that 2021 has been very different. Thanks to the worldwide chip shortage, Global Foundries is doing incredibly well this year. In the first half, their sales were up 12%. And while the earnings per share are still in slightly negative territory, this is a huge industrial company that needs to recognize enormous depreciation losses every year, even though those losses are entirely on paper. What's more important is the earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, which surged 42% in the first half. And if anything, the preliminary results for the third quarter look even better probably looking at 55% revenue growth, 5.5, and 80% EBITDA growth, which is nuts. Put it all together, there's a lot to like with this one. Global Foundries is the only semiconductor foundry with a truly global presence at a time when chips are in very short supply and the world wants to diversify away from manufacturing everything in Southeast Asia as a matter of national security. They make full-feature chips at a time when other foundries don't want to go there, too worried about margins. But it turns out those chips, which are often denigrated as dumb chips, that that cost a dollar and change, say, instead of five times that with big gross margins, like those hyperscale computing, well, the chips, those are really what's in demand, can get at the highest end for, like, the cloud. Well, these can get a lot more expensive when there's a shortage. A dumb chip can become smart. In terms of end markets, they're tied to some of the best secular trends on Earth, Trends, by the way, that are secular only post-pandemic. On top of that, after investing heavily in new capacity over the past decade, Global Foundry is now making a fortune, although the numbers could get a little noisy next year because they're in the process of selling one of their upstate New York facilities to On Semi. Plus, they plan to spend $6 billion adding more capacity in Singapore, Germany, and New York, which means the earnings likely won't look great in 2022. That said, we now know they can really clean up thanks to the industry-wide supply constraints. One last positive. Governments around the world have woken up to the fact that the semiconductor shortage is a strategic threat, okay, strategic. So they've spent heavily to promote domestic manufacturing. As a result, Global Foundry is getting subsidies from Singapore and New York. I'd be surprised if they don't get more money from the federal government and from Germany. Every time you hear about how Washington wants to fix the semiconductor shortage, you need to think of one thing, Global Foundries. However, there's some legitimate complications. For one thing, the UAE's sovereign wealth fund still owns 90% of the company. Hey, look, the UAE is a very close U.S. ally. The problem is we're talking about a publicly traded entity that's still basically run by what's, what's a, a, a private equity fund, uh, suboptimal. Second, while the foundry business is an oligopoly, Global Foundries is one of the weaker oligopolists, lagging far behind Samsung and Taiwan Semi, which together control more than 70% of the market. Third, historically, this is just a very tough industry. 
Huge upfront investments, long payback periods, tight margins, and the whole group gets eviscerated every time there's a bad down cycle. So you have to really believe we've got tremendous long-term demand for chips if you're going to own this one. Something that CEO Tom Caulfield, by the way, a terrific guy, is a great spokesperson for. But the bottom line, having spoken to so many companies that are in desperate need of chips, I think the semiconductor shortage will persist for far longer than we'd like, which is bad news for the global economy, but fantastic news for global founders. And that's why I think it's a buy. No, make that a solid buy. I need to go to Dan in Missouri. Dan. Hey, Jim, I got to need your opinion uh, on Micron Technology stock. Here's a company that made $2.37 in 2020, $5.13 in 2021, expecting over around $9 in 2022. Um, they've got 15 buys, six holes, one sell. Right, right. The average, average price of 9609 uh, they've got a low of 58 and 165. Uh, that sounds at about 12% down and 40% up. It looks like a pretty good buy to me. Okay, here's the think? problem. Here's the problem. Uh, there isn't a person, including Sanjay Marotra, who's the CEO, who wouldn't admit that there are some pricing pressures on some of their product lines. Uh, there are, there is more, there's a lot of DRAM. I think DRAM is going to be in, in uh, a bit of glut. And, and we know from Western Digital, we got a bit of a glut going in, in flash. So I want to hold off. Has not bottomed yet. I think low 60s at bottoms. And then we can take a shot at it. All right, the chip shortage will persist for a lot longer than we'd like or seem to even know. That's bad news for the global economy. Fantastic news for a company that nobody even cares about that they should. Global foundries. It's a buy. Much more money money, including my shoes with Dow, the old Dow chemical. How is the old school commodity, commodity uh, chemi- chemical commodity play? Working just, that's a tongue twister, isn't it? Support a healthier and greener earth. Yeah, that's right, plastic. I'm learning more from the CEO. Then demand or supply, that is the question. Taking a closer look at some of the week's biggest reports and sharing why this question can help you craft a better investing thesis. And then, of course, rapid fire tonight, the lightning round. So stay with Kramer. Now that we've made it through the busiest week of earnings season, sheer hell, by the way, I want to carve out some time to talk about some of the longer-term issues that plague not just our country, but the entire world. Things like climate change, the need for more sustainable business practices. Now, this is something that never used to matter on Wall Street, but we've now got a new generation of younger money managers who genuinely take this stuff seriously. Maybe because they don't want Manhattan sinking below sea level before they're old enough to retire. Maybe their beach house is going to get taken away by you know, rising tide of melted water from the ice cap. Now, and you younger investors out there have castigated everyone, including me. Get more real about the planet as a stakeholder. And that's something I'm doing this year and for the rest of the term that I do this show. See, it's gotten to the point where some of the most carbon intensive companies on Earth have suddenly gotten religion on the environment. Yesterday at CNBC's ESG Impact Conference, something I really passionately care about, I got a chance to speak with Jim Fitterling, who is an intellectual, happens to be the chairman and CEO of Dow, the iconic chemical company that does burn through natural gas like there's no tomorrow. Yet Dow's not, it's got some ambitious climate initiatives, really smart ones, to the point where they're aiming for zero carbon emissions by 2050, unthinkable even five years ago. So I want you to take a look. Jim, you have been outspoken as one of the great CEOs in terms of sustainability and net zero. But at the same time, as you know, when I first met you, you make plastic. And 
and a lot of the younger people say, you know what? doesn't really matter what he does. He makes plastic, and plastic is bad for the environment. So before we get into the unbelievable efforts that you've made to save the environment, what do you say to people who say, oh, plastic, uh, that's bad. We should be using paper. It's uh, much better. It's, uh, it's much cleaner. It's much more environmental. Well, Jim, uh, great to be here. And, and plastics play an important role in our lives. And one of the reasons they've grown to be as big as they are today is because of the sustainable nature of the product. It has the lowest CO2 footprint of any of the alternative packages that are out there. It's completely recyclable. And I think the issue that we're trying to deal with right now is one of plastic waste, which is really a waste issue and an infrastructure issue. And we're trying to tackle that through alliances like the Alliance in Plastic Waste and public-private partnerships around the world. We are going to take our portfolio to zero scope one and two emissions by 2050, and we've announced the first plans to do that. When we do that, it will make plastics um, the most sustainable product out there. All right, so let's talk about the notion uh, that you're the CEO of a company that is got to make a lot of money for shareholders, and at the same time, you care passionately about the environment. You're doing some things uh, like you're building a cracker, and you can explain that. In Alberta, <laughs> my first reaction is, now, wait a second. You're building some big plant in some place that is, uh, who the hell knows? It's probably going to cost a fortune, and how can it possibly be good for the environment? And yet, that's precisely what you're doing. So can you explain that dual mandate of making money for shareholders, but really trying to preserve the environment? Yeah, we work in a a very big scale in the products that we make. And so when we make an investment, uh, sometimes it's more than a billion-dollar investment. And investors want to know that their dividend is safe. Uh, They want to know that your balance sheet is good and that you're going to be able to not only just decarbonize your footprint, but you're going to be able to decarbonize and grow. We made the announcement in Alberta for two reasons. Uh, One was because of the policies that are there from both a price on carbon and the ability to capture carbon and sequester it. But secondly, it's based on technology investments and, and things that we can do. We, we, can, we have an existing cracker in Alberta, and what we do when we make ethylene is we crack ethane. You make ethylene, but you also make methane and hydrogen off the back end of the cracker. We will build a new cracker. We will take the back end products of methane and hydrogen off of both the existing cracker and the new cracker, put it through an autothermal reformer and make clean hydrogen, and that clean hydrogen will fuel the whole complex. I will take the whole complex to zero scope one and two emissions with this project. That's 20% of my ethylene and plastics footprint around the world, and it will more than triple the amount of product that I make there. All right, so you're talking about circularity, sustainability, carbon capture, and at the same time, green hydrogen, which people must know, is probably got the least footprint of anything on Earth, correct? Yes. Um, green. Well, this is circular hydrogen is what okay. we would call it. Uh, green hydrogen is, is a little ways away and, and fairly expensive. But this is taking byproducts off the back end of the crackers and converting them through autothermal reforming into hydrogen. So it's actually less expensive than even blue hydrogen. And, and by doing that, we know that we can generate a return on invested capital greater than 15 percent with this investment which for an an investor is exactly what they're looking for. How can you give me a return? How can you keep my dividend whole? How can you grow your enterprise and keep a value-creating multiple on the company? At the same time, we reduce the tail risk on the company and we move ourselves to green. 
Over the last 18 months during COVID, we went through 12 sites globally. That is our CO2 footprint. And we laid out a plan between now and 2050 to methodically get those sites to zero scope one and two emissions. And we earmarked a billion dollars a year. Our depreciation and amortization is about 2.9. A billion dollars a year will go to decarbonize and grow the core of the company. Let's talk about fashion, something that you and I rarely talk about. Talk about Ralph Lauren, uh, an innovative company. They make clothes. A lot of clothes end up in landfills. There's lots of dyes, lots of things that people don't like in the environment. And then suddenly I read about Dow Open Source and Ralph Lauren in the same headline. What's going on? Well, Ralph Lauren has been a partner uh, through the Olympics. And um, Ralph Lauren, obviously, is a big user of cotton. And to dye textiles, it, it, it takes a lot of chemicals and a lot of water and you generate a lot of waste. And, and mainly you do that because you're, you're trying to use heat and pressure to, to put the dye into the fabric. We worked with Ralph Lauren, and we created a product called EcoFast Pure, which really works on the cotton, changes the charge of the cotton. And to dye the cotton, you need 90% less chemicals, 50% less energy, 50% less water. And it's so environmentally friendly. How do we be sure that others... Do like what you're doing in Alberta. What I always fear is the Potemkin Village issue, which is that uh, it looks good, but it's one off and it's really designed, the cynics would say, to 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 hide what else you're up to. Well, we're working hard right now on policy. I would like to see the United States have policies like Canada. We've been very uh, vocal about we need a global market price on carbon. Uh, We need a price on carbon here. We need caps and and allowances on CO2 emissions, and and in an emissions trading system type of a scheme, allowances that would reduce over time in line with the targets to get CO2 emissions down. That allows you to bring in the capital markets to make these investments. We also need infrastructure for both hydrogen and for CO2 capture. One of the reasons we went to Canada first is there's a CO2 capture trunk line right there, the Alberta carbon trunk line. We'll, we'll be a big contractor into that line, and we'll take all the CO2 emissions from that site there. We need to develop that here. We signed on with uh, Exxon and 11 other companies to really create a hub like that in Houston. So we need some support from a CapEx standpoint. It's more expensive to do this from a capital standpoint in terms of incentives. But we also need that price on carbon so that the higher cost of doing all this doesn't just get passed on to the consumer. Now, we know that, as you said about plastic, it's easily recycled. I know there's some companies, you and I know Eastman Chemical, talking about it as, as really, really being maybe the great, <laughs> the great savior of the planet to some degree. And what I'm concerned about is, in the end, doesn't it take will of people and perhaps government incentives, of which I'm sure you talk about all the time at the Alliance to End Plastic Waste, to get this thing saved, uh, the planet saved? And I want to emphasize, it's... There are whole countries, Jim, that don't care about this, right? Or, or if they don't say don't care, certainly say, you know what, it doesn't matter. And aren't they, if there is a so-called villain in the story, the people in countries that simply don't care and dump plastic in our, in our sainted rivers and oceans? I, I think what you've seen around the world is plastics have helped deliver fresh food, medicines, Many, any number of things to a growing economy and a growing population, a growing middle class. And in some countries in the world, 
that growing population and growing middle class has outstripped their capability to deal with waste management. We, we're fortunate here in the United States, our waste management system is actively managed, but we still live in a linear economy where, where not just plastics, but a lot of things people use, they use once and they throw it away. If you want to move to a circular economy, you have to incentivize the, the circular nature or the recycling of the product. And what we have committed to is we think there are some targets that industry can agree to. For example, if, if plastics and packaging companies could agree to 30% post-consumer recycle material in all their packages, this would drive demand that would create incentives for people to invest in recycling. If every city or every municipality would have curbside recycling that included plastics instead of excluding it, and we make the investments in digital sorting, which are available today and, and profitable today, to sort those plastics at the recycling facility, we create a stream that can be used to fulfill those targets. And so we've worked with the EPA for years. 50% recycle mandate in the United States is not out of reach. Uh, we just need to get the policies and the investments lined up to go do it. There are a lot of startup companies in this space that have a lot of good technology, and there's money flowing into ESG funds like crazy right now, and we're just trying to get project by project up and running, demonstrate that they work, and get more municipalities and more governments to sign on. Well, uh, Jim, you have me as a believer. I've listened to you many times, been able to speak to you many times. I know you are the leader in, in this area, and if others joined you. I think that we wouldn't be talking ESG. We'd just be talking about how we clean the planet up every day. Jim Fitterling, CEO of Dow. Great to see you, Jim. Thank you. It is time. It's time and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski dead to the lightning round because it's over. Daryl in California. Daryl. Hi, Jim, from San Ramon, California. Unbelievable. I'm a longtime watcher since Kudlow and Kramer. Holy cow, I was young then. What's going on? My stock has a 9% dividend. Its trend is line is down. It has earnings next week. It's Omega Healthcare OHI. Okay, this is hard for me to fathom because it's, it's diverging so much from Ventos. BTR, which has a 3% yield. i got to see what's going on. Usually that's a red flag to have a yield that high. Paul in California, Paul. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Paul. EVLO. How high can it go? A total spec on on different illnesses. Uh, when I see a spec on cancer, because my mom died from cancer, I always say, listen, let's give this one a shot. Someone might have something against these dreaded diseases. Remember, they're not just one disease. Let's go to Robert in Maryland. Robert. Oh yeah, Jim Chill. Yo, what's happening? The chill be in hell in the house. Yes, 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 sir. Hey, look, I know you love CrowdStrike and you love uh, Palo Alto, but what about Zscaler? Should I jump into Jay that Shortry? one? Ah, I like Jay. Hey, don't get me wrong. Here's the problem: this stock has never had a down day, it seems. But yeah, Jay does great. Zscaler is really good. And please, let's not forget Octa. Let's go to Zach in New York, please, Zach. Jim, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure, Zach. What's happening? Uh, my question today is about DICOM Industries. 
Why the heck isn't that stock higher? I mean, don't we have huge problems with the wires and all over the utility and that? Ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Demand or supply? That is the question. Whether it's as nobler in the mind to suffer through a couple of tough quarters with Apple to wind up with outrageous fortune or to take up arms against a sea of troubles and sell the darn stuff. As so many doubting analysts want you to do. Oh, Apple, hasn't it become the perfect microcosm of the moment? I want to go to the Globe Theater in the metaverse and watch this Apple play. They, I always wanted to do, by the way, Hamlet, but I, Mrs. Duesenberg didn't even like me. and I couldn't even make the course. All right. Anyway, they delivered a gigantic quarter, no doubt about it. But they still left six billion in sales on the table because of the chip shortage. The demand is too great. The supply too little. Of course, the legion of Apple haters don't believe that demand can last. They think we may have reached saturation. Yeah, that's right. No more phones. Don't need them. Or the products lack newness. That's right. My 13, which I just love. Well, you know, the heck with it. Look at this. It's got like 17,000 cameras. Anyway, uh, or the holiday sales will simply rotate into other goods, not other Apple products, because there won't be enough uh, of them. I think they'll probably buy typewriters and buy alarm clocks. Now, I think all these people are dead wrong who criticize Apple. Okay, first of all, it's an amazing quarter. But let's think about this. Wall Street totally accepts that the auto companies are leaving billions on the table due to the chip shortage. And they're forgiven like they haven't done anything. Tim Cook? No. Hectored. Yeah, that's also a Greek term, by the way. Uh, It deserves at least much trust as the auto CEOs. Understand, though, this is the quarter where many companies are on the defensive about whether demand can last. So I want you to take a look at Stanley Black & Decker. I interviewed them on uh, Squawk on the Street. The toolmaker did miss its estimates, and it did it in large part because it has hundreds of millions of dollars worth of merchandise sitting in those containers in the Pacific. The stock's gotten crushed. It got hit again today because of questions about what would happen when those tools arrive. Will they be sold? Or will they just sit on the shelves lonely at Lowe's? Please buy me. Because now we have too many of them? Like with Apple, I believe in an era that Stanley Black & Decker's peddling. I'm buying what they're selling. There's tremendous demand for tools to help transform parts of your home into a home office. Now, I don't see it going away. In fact, I see it accelerating as more people realize that remote work, or at least hybrid work, has become permanent. And the younger generation says, hey, listen, make me come to work. So why the heck are the analysts so nervous? Because they think we've been here before. They know it's impossible to tell when a product cycle is about to collapse. So they need to dig in their heels and try to get out ahead of it. Sooner or later, they know we'll hit the peak. And the analyst who nails it, that analyst will be glorified. He'll be, she, be lionized. Everyone who misses it will look like a moron. I've told you this before, that this industry has a bearish bias. Even as the bias of the actual stock market has been bullish for, let's say, my entire life, nobody ever got castigated for calling the top too early. But they'll tear you to pieces if you call it too late. As a result, there are tons of industries where the analysts tend to call peaks prematurely, routinely. Almost every analyst thinks that 2022 will, say, be a down year for steel, okay? They just think it's going to get crushed. Now, the Kramer Club 
says that steel, which is only at CNBC, the Kramer Club says that steel should remain steady, though. And in the interim, you can buy some new core, that's the largest and best producer, at a very cheap price versus what it's going to trade at next year. Steel is subject to major tariffs, and new supply isn't really coming online. There's nothing to sate the demand out there, at least not next year, which is why so many analysts, uh, so many investors are piling into the group, even as the analysts aren't. See, numbers are too low, but the analysts have seen it before. They're smarter than we are. <laughs> My favorite thing, though, is to spot when a company has become much less cyclical than it used to be, when it's less of a boom-bust story than we think. So let's take last night. We had Brunswick on, right? Now, Brunswick, pretty easy to know, right? Big boating company. And I had feared the stock was about to get KO'd by the analyst community. But after talking to the CEO, it's clear that the business is much less hostage to the demand for boats now that because it gets 50 percent of its revenues from parts and services. These are instant. These are revenues, earning stream, traditional, predictable, institutional money managers will pay more for that because it's consistent, even as the stock ended up pulling back a tad today. Now, I think the same thing is happening with another company we had on, Lindy. Uh, that's the industrial gas distributor. That's another charitable trust name, and one we spoke to the other day. We had a really good piece out of it for those who are members of the club. It's becoming less of a cyclical, more of a secular growth story. Cyclicals like this, seculars like this, which is why the stock's been running. By the way, it hit an all-time high today. So be careful of leaving these talks too soon, something I talk about all the time to club members. It, the toughest thing to do is to, is to strap yourself to the mass. Yes, just right to the mass, because the analysts say you need to dodge a bullet and you should sell. But there's no point in dodging a bullet that's not coming, at least not in the next year. And that's what you need to think about when you're investing. Now, I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you Monday. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.